Today's scripture is from Acts chapter 17, the first 12 verses. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews, and Paul went in as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus who I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men from the rabble, they formed a mob, set out the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of them and the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest... They let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing, as well as men. Good morning. Thanks, Jerry. So today, we jump back into the book of Acts. We're looking at Paul and Silas, who were sharing the gospel as they were traveling around. They were inflamed with the good news of Jesus Christ. They were longing for the world to know that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is Lord over all the earth, and that he calls every human being to repent and turn to him and come to him for life. The early church was seeing their whole purpose in the declaration Jesus gave them back in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where he said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That has been the purpose of the church from that time on, and it continues to be our purpose. We're given the Holy Spirit that we might be witnesses to the good news about Jesus. The world around us is trapped in worship of self, 
worship of other false gods. It's captive to sin and subject to death. And the Bible describes death as everything from frustration and depression and emptiness and loneliness and brokenness and enslavement, addiction to evil, and ultimately physical death as well. And only Jesus can bring the life that we all desperately need and long for. G.K. Chesterton famously said, a man knocking on the door of a brothel is looking for God. We need to remember that every human heart, everybody, no matter what they're doing or what they're looking for, they're looking for God. They're longing for Him. They're built for Him. And so as witnesses to Jesus Christ, we have the good news to bring to those who are lost in this world. The early church had a clear vision that they were to be witnesses. But you and I are called to be witnesses just as much. Now, if we're honest, it's hard, isn't it? I mean, we get distracted easily from that sense of purpose we have to be witnesses to him. We get distracted by bills to pay and jobs to go to and kids to drive to soccer and all the things that take up our lives. It's easy to forget why we're here. But for the next couple of weeks, I, I'm hoping that as we look at Paul and Silas as, as they journey from Thessalonica to Berea and then to Athens, that we will, each of us, catch a vision for what God has placed us here for, what it means to be witnesses, and that we'll be reminded of our message today and the response we can expect, and then of a danger that we need to avoid. So let's pray, and then we'll dig into this passage together. Lord, thank you that you, Lord Jesus, are Lord. You are Lord over all the earth. Thank you that you came and you died and you rose again for us, and we celebrate that for ourselves. But Lord, you call us to be witnesses. Help us learn more today. Expand our minds on what we are as your witnesses here on earth and how we might live that out. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So to remind you of the context from a couple weeks ago where Hernan taught us about Paul and Silas being in jail in Philippi and how God worked a great miracle and uh, they were freed and the jailer came to Christ and this church was established in Philippi. So now Paul and Silas are headed to the major city of the entire region of Macedonia, which is Thessalonica. I want to show you a map. You can see where they traveled from Philippi to Thessalonica, about 100 miles. Thessalonica was a major city, in fact, the major city of all Macedonia of the time. It had about 200,000 people in it. I want to show you a picture of what it looks like today. It's right on the water, major port, and 200,000 people. You think about how big that is. That was a big city in those days, about the size of Boise itself today. And so Paul chose that to be the place where he wanted to create an established church of Jesus Christ, central in all of Macedonia. So he strategically chose it. So let's see how he went about bringing the gospel to this place in Thessalonica. First, we want to look at the message that he brought. And our message is, as it always should be, 
Jesus. As it begins, we see how Paul goes to the synagogue. He won't abandon his own people. If you recall, when God, God called Paul, he said, you will be my apostle to the Gentiles, right? But he never let go of the people of Israel, the Jews, his own people. He wouldn't abandon his own people, even though Jesus told him that his primary ministry would be to non-Jews. He still always went to the Jewish synagogue first, and he did what he always did. He related the good news about Jesus to his audience. You see, he knows the Jews. Obviously, he is one. He has been one. He grew up there, and he knows that what drives the heart of a Jewish person who loves the Scriptures and follows the Scriptures is their desire for Messiah. And for these first century Jews, they were longing for Messiah to come. And they had, according to their theology, uh, a theology that this Messiah would be a victorious Messiah that would come and establish his kingdom and throw out the Romans and renew the glory of Israel. That was their theology. It was very clear to them. That's the Messiah they were looking for. So what Paul does is he takes them to their own scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, and shows them truths about Jesus. But how he did it, I think, is very critical for us to understand. He didn't just kind of walk in and stand on a platform and say, turn or burn. (laughs) But instead, he approached them in a way that they could understand. There's three words that are used to describe what he did. At the end of verse 2, it says, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. So he took them into the Word, but as he did so, that word for reasoned is the word, Greek word dialegomai, where we get our word dialogue. In other words, it was a discussion. He didn't just say, hey, here's what the truth is, and you better believe it or not. No, he said, hey, look at this. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about what the Scriptures say. What do you see here? And let's see, doesn't it say the Messiah needs to suffer? I know that's different than your theology, but think about this for a minute. Look at what it's saying. And he dialogued with them. I think that's very critical to understand that if we're going to bring the gospel and be witnesses, a lot of it takes discussion, entering into discussion with people and showing them the truth, but giving them a chance to respond. The second word he uses that Luke uses to describe it is in verse 3 where he says he was explaining, explaining, my translation. Literally, that word means to open up. He was just opening it up so they could look at it, making it visible so they could see the truth about Jesus. And then the third word is, my translation, proving some things about Jesus. That word is setting before. I I picture it as setting the table. He says, hey, this is what the scriptures say. Look what it says about Jesus, that he had to suffer and rise again, and that he's now Lord. And so here's your opportunity to sit down and have a meal. What I appreciate about Paul is that he trusted the word in all of this. He didn't feel like he had to force feed the truth to people. He laid it out to them and he trusted that the word had power and that God would work in their hearts and their souls and their minds to help them see what they needed to see. And in particular, 
what he led them into was that Jesus was a Messiah who had to suffer. Now again, this was not part of the Jewish theology. Their theology was there was a victorious Messiah coming. So what they do with the passages like Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22 and Zechariah where it talks about Messiah suffering. Well, basically, they either ignored those passages or there was actually a, a group, a sect of the Jews that said, well, there must be two messiahs coming. One who's the victorious one and one who's going to suffer because obviously they can't be the same person. They could not fit it into their theology. So what Paul did is he set before them the truth and gave them the opportunity to respond. There's some things I think we can draw from this as we think about being witnesses for Jesus. Number one, our message is always Jesus. It always comes back to pointing people to him, to helping people understand how he suffered for us. He died and he rose again in a way that they can understand. We'll talk about that more next week, what it means to bring it to people where they are. But it's a reminder that our message is Jesus. Our message is not the church or even Christianity or our particular group. You know, you can invite people to church, but that isn't our message. Our message is Jesus. And so I encourage you to think about that, how you can put Jesus in terms the person can understand and bringing your message always back to him. And we'll talk next week about how we need to be willing to enter the person's world and discuss with them where they are and what they think. And finally, our job is never to pressure someone into a response. Our job is to open up the truth, set it before them, and then leave it in God's hands. Earlier in Acts, Acts 13, verse 48, it says, they shared the gospel, Paul and Silas, Paul and Barnabas, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Now, I can't explain all that and the theology of that. I mean, it's too big for me. But let me say this, that takes the pressure off. We don't have to make somebody believe it's in God's hands and his word is powerful. We can rest that he will accomplish his work. So the message is Jesus. And what kind of responses can we expect if we just lay Jesus before people? Let him know that he's Lord, that he's alive. We see three different responses in this passage. First one is belief. First one is belief. It says in verse 4, I'll just read that again, and some of them were persuaded. Some of the Jews of Thessalonica were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. And verse 12, Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. Many Bereans believed of the Jews, just a few of the Thessalonians. But they believed, they trusted, they followed Paul and Silas. And reading those two verses, I don't know what stands out to you, but something that stood out to me is leading women and women of high standing. In other words, these women who were influential in the culture responded to the gospel. The first description in verse 4 says, literally, they were first women. These women had incredible power in the culture. 
they'd reached a position somehow where they had great influence in the culture as a whole. These were first women. In verse 12, the word for high standing, the word that's translated leading women perhaps in your translation, is talking about having a high status in the culture, being a celebrity essentially, having a tremendous reputation among the people. So I look at that and I think, wow, these women who had achieved everything society had to offer realized what they needed was more. They needed Jesus. I'm struck, and I'll just want to say this. So many women in our culture feel slighted, and there's always this concern because women uh, have been dominated by men in many cultures, and that is absolutely true, and, and women are absolutely equal in God's sight and should receive equal pay for equal work, and all of that is true. But unfortunately, what happens sometimes is some women feel like, and the way to deal with that is to achieve the power that men have and the status that men have, and then we'll be okay. Well, these women had achieved all that, and they still weren't okay. (laughs) What they needed was Jesus. And it reminds us that for us, no matter who it is, whether they're celebrities, whether they're powerful in this world, whether they're nobodies, (laughs) even lawyers need Jesus, even politicians need Jesus. (laughs) Everybody needs Jesus, right? And it's just a good reminder to that, that the things that sometimes we think, oh, if I just had that, I would be okay. Status, power, etc. No, what we need is Jesus. They responded and committed their lives to him. Jesus is the answer to every human heart. So some believed. They committed themselves to Christ and became followers of his, joined the church there in Thessalonica. But the second response was resistance. Resistance. Verse 5. But the Jews, most of the Jews, were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And they went on creating this huge riot. It says they were jealous. What were they jealous of? Well, think about it. Paul's coming in to their synagogue, and he's sharing the gospel, and some people are leaving the synagogue. They're losing influence over these people. They're losing probably financial support. They're losing status in the community, and their narrow theology is being challenged, and they don't like it. So their response is to create a riot. They grab some evil men out of the marketplace, create a riot to try to drive Paul and Silas and the other Christians out of the community. I want you to notice their accusations that they make. Verse 6. It says, when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. In other words, what they're claiming is we need to do away with them because they are disturbing the status quo. They're messing with our stable society. And I guess what I would say is, well, 
yes, the gospel does mess with the world as it is. In fact, it says they were, they're turning the world upside down. But the truth is, brothers and sisters, they were turning the upside down world right side up. Taking this messed up world where people are broken and hurting and can't figure out where life is, they're lonely, they're dysfunctional. They don't know how to function as families or parents or how to get along in the world. They're grieving, they're confused. They're broken in so many ways. And the gospel says, I know how to turn your life right side up. And so it's an accusation that is accurate, but not quite right. (laughs) Because the gospel really does disturb the status quo because it absolutely changes lives. It brings life to them. The second accusation is a very serious one, verse 7, where it says, and Jason has received them, they go on, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. Their accusation is that, hey, Caesar's the only king, and the decrees of Caesar say you must worship him and him alone and not give allegiance to any other king. Every good Roman citizen had to declare publicly, Caesar is Lord. Or bear terrible consequences. And what they were bringing brought them a charge of treason because what the Christians were saying is, you know, Caesar is not Lord. (laughs) Jesus is. And that is an accurate accusation. It is true. N.T. Wright puts it this way. In Acts 1 through 12, Jesus is hailed as Messiah, King of the Jews, until eventually the present king, this was King Herod, remember, tries to do something about it, but is struck down for his pagan arrogance. Remember when Herod was eaten by worms? Now from Acts 13 onward, Jesus is being hailed as another king, Lord of the world, but there's already a Lord of the world. And anyone who knows anything about tyrants, particularly ancient Roman ones, knows well they don't take kindly to rivals on the stage. So the early Christians were in a position where they were declaring, Jesus is Lord, and it did stand against the prevailing culture of the time. If Jesus is Lord, then Caesar is not Lord. Neither is a president or a king or a country or an ideology or anything else today. And our allegiance, if we are followers of Jesus Christ, means that he alone has our allegiance, even as we seek to be good citizens of the country we're part of. John Stott puts it this way. On the one hand, as Christian people, we're called to be conscientious and law-abiding citizens, not revolutionaries. On the other hand, the kingship of Jesus has unavoidable political implications. Since as his loyal subjects, we must refuse to give any ruler or ideology the supreme homage and total obedience which are due to him alone. 
You see, every follower of Jesus, every true follower of Jesus cannot give full allegiance to anything other than Christ, including a country. And so we need to make sure Jesus is first and foremost in our lives. So there was resistance, belief, also resistance. But what we find in Berea is something completely different. We see eager examination. As he goes on, as he gets kicked out of Thessalonica, Paul and Silas go on to Berea. I want to show you the map as they travel 50 miles or so. And as they move on to Berea from Thessalonica. Go about 50 miles. They think they're going to be fine there. And I want to show you a, a picture too from Berea from today when, from when we visited there not long ago. And Berea, you see this mosaic. It's a beautiful mosaic that commemorates this passage of Paul preaching to the Berean Jews and they're looking at their scrolls, at their scriptures, examining the word daily. Let me read verse 11 again. It says, Now these Jews in Berea were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Their response was eager examination. They received the word. They listened to Paul and they said, Wow, this does not fit in our theology. But instead of creating a riot to get rid of them, they said, if it doesn't fit in my theology, then I need to look at the scriptures and examine it and see with an open mind whether this is true or not. And these Bereans were more noble because they were willing to look at the scriptures and have their thinking Changed. They, it showed great openness and a great commitment to the Scriptures as their authority, not their doctrinal box. Do you get that? Because I think we struggle with this sometimes. Their authority was the Scriptures, not their doctrinal box. What did, de- what did they demonstrate? Well, for one, integrity. An integrity that says, I'm not just going to pretend to be open to hearing to you, but I'm actually gathering ammunition so I can attack you? That's easy to do, isn't it? We all do that sometimes. But no, they were actually listening with the integrity of saying, wow, I want to understand to see if this is really from God. It showed absence of bias. Yeah, this is new information, but I'm open to finding the truth. And I'm not going to hold on to my biases and somehow miss out on what God may want to teach me through what you're saying. It shows humility, a humility that says, I'm admitting I don't know everything. (laughs) In fact, I know very little. My understanding is so limited, and, and I need God to open my mind to what's really true. And I want the Scriptures to change my thinking. And it shows a great hunger for the truth. And a great commitment to the Word of God. Yes, the Word's our authority, but we need to let it change our thinking. Oh, that people would be more willing to do what the Bereans did, to look at different viewpoints and really understand. Brothers and sisters, we live in a world today that is is so divided, right? We have what's often called tribalism. What is tribalism? It's 
Okay, I'm, I'm looking for people that think just the way I do. That's my tribe. And I am going to hang on to that no matter what, and I will exclude and condemn everybody else as wrong. Creates incredible division in our world, doesn't it? My way is the only way, and if you disagree, you're wrong. Why, why do we get tribalistic? Well, we don't know exactly, but I, I think, maybe, part of it at least, is that our world has become so confused and insecure that we're looking for somewhere to find security and identity, and so we've begun to grab onto certain ideologies, ways of thinking about the world, political perspectives, and we're trying to find our security and and our identity there. The world's doing it all around us. Unfortunately, I see Christians falling into that same error. What it does is it means I can't explore other ideas because I've got to protect my narrow way of thinking. What this shows when we are like the Thessalonican Jews rather than the Berean Jews, when we're narrow-minded rather than noble-minded, shows insecurity, bias, pride, and no real interest in knowing the real truth. We're just hanging on to our own ideas. So, I, I just think this is a challenge that we need to wrestle with a little bit as believers this morning. Are we narrow-minded or noble-minded? Thessalonican Jews or Berean Jews? I want to read you something that actually was voted the best religious joke ever. I don't know by who, but, you know. Once I saw this guy on a bridge about to jump, I said, don't do it. He said, nobody loves me. I said, God loves you. Do you believe in God? He said, yes. Well, I said, well, are you a Christian or a Jew? He said, a Christian. I said, me too. Protestant or Catholic? He said, Protestant. I said, me too. What franchise? He said, Baptist. I said, me too. Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist? He said, Northern Baptist. I said, me too. Northern Conservative Baptist or Northern Liberal Baptist? He said, Northern Liberal, Nor- Northern Conservative Baptist. I said, me too. Northern Conservative Baptist, Great Lakes region? Or Northern Conservative Baptist, Eastern region? He said, Northern Conservative Baptist, Great Lakes region. I said, me too. Northern Conservative Baptist, Great Lakes region, Council of 1879? Or Northern Conservative Baptist, Great Lakes region, Council of 1912? He said, Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912. I said, die, heretic, and I pushed him off. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, we laugh at that, but aren't we kind of that way? We draw our little boxes, and we have our tribe, and we protect it, and we exclude everybody else? Are we as believers insecure about what we believe so we have to have others agree with us or we condemn them? And we go to social media to 
tell them how wrong they are and write them off? Or do we really listen and honestly search the Scriptures to see if we are wrong so we can change? Or do we use the Scriptures to just confirm our own biases? Do we recruit a mob over social media to shout down the other voices? I want to do a little illustration here just to highlight what we're talking about. A couple of bins here with stuff in them. Think of this one as our non-negotiables. These are the things we believe that if anybody's outside of that, then they're wrong. We're committed to these beliefs. The negotiable bucket are the things that, well, I believe this, I vote this way, I do this, but I know that there's a lot of great Christians who look at it differently, so I hold this very loosely. Now, when I came to Christ at age 17, I was taught a specific way of looking at a lot of things in the Christian world. And so I had a lot of things in my non-negotiable bucket, and anybody who was outside of that, I saw as wrong. Is this ringing any bells for you? But as I began to read the scriptures and spend time in the word, I began to see that, you know what? That's a, that's a negotiable, and that's a negotiable, and that's a negotiable. And I found I was having a lot more stuff in my negotiable bucket than my non-negotiable. Now, the non-negotiable does contain the essence of the gospel and our doctrinal statement and those things, but what we tend to include in our non-negotiables are, hey, a good Christian should dress this way, should raise their kids this way, to send these kid, your kids to this kind of school, should not do these kind of actions, should do these other kinds of actions that aren't necessarily biblical, or, but we have these ideas about things, and we exclude people because they're different than us. And I think part of what we're talking about here is God wants us to have an attitude of openness to let God change our thinking. Yes, to the, through the Scriptures, yes, we're committed to the Word, but we don't exclude people just because we have our ideas and somebody comes up against it with a different idea. Do we take it to the scriptures and wrestle with it and allow room for mystery? God is so much bigger than us and our minds can't even begin to wrap ourselves around who God is and yet we, we have a narrow little box that we think we've got it all figured out. The Berean Jews had an attitude of, you know what, I, I need to have my mind expanded. I need to learn to understand the truth in a bigger way. Just tell you a little story from my own life. I was interim pastor for a while at a church, and the people said, wow, this is great. I think we should hire him full time. You know, we got along well. It was, seemed like a good fit. And I met with the elders, and we went through this huge list of things they had. Do you match up here? 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 Everything fit. Then we got to eschatology. And they, were, they said, well, do you believe in pre-mill, pre-trib, dispensational theology about the end times? I said, well, you know what? I was taught that. But the more I read the scriptures, I'm just kind of wrestling with it. I haven't really landed somewhere else, but I, I, 
I'm really trying to see what the scriptures have to say about the end times. And they said, well, there's no way we would ever hire you. Now, God had a plan in that, and I thank him that we didn't end up there. And it is interesting that that theology was a litmus test during those years, but less and less people actually believe it, less and less scholars as they spend more time in the Word. Do we read the Bible just to confirm what we already believe or to really hear from God? You see, if we're not having our minds blown pretty regularly, I mean in a sense of, wow, God, you're far bigger than I thought, and, and there's more variation in the body of Christ in the ways of thinking and looking at things than I ever realized. If that's not happening regularly to you, then I would have to suggest maybe you're not really open to what the Scriptures have to say because God is so much bigger than we are. And I just want to highlight one area in particular that I'm concerned about as your pastor. And that's the area of politics. Are we so insecure that we can't truly listen and understand other political viewpoints? So we think a good Christian could only vote my way and everybody else is wrong? Frankly, brothers and sisters, there are good reasons to vote a lot of different ways biblical reasons, and we need to be open to hearing from God and love our brothers and sisters rather than creating a mob on social media to attack a different viewpoint. Seems for many Christians their identity has gotten wrapped up in a political stance. But our identity needs to be in Jesus Christ, not in our politics. Our culture is so divided in many ways, and certainly politically. And they're condemning one another on both sides. Can we as Christians be different from the world? Because we follow a different Lord. Jesus is Lord. And let me say that the younger people here among us just want to be able to discuss hard questions and wrestle with what the Bible says about difficult things, and yet too often they run up against other believers that have their box set and just simply say, no, this is the way it is, without a willingness to discuss it. Oh, can we be good Bereans and search, examine the scriptures to see if it be so? Are we narrow-minded or noble-minded? Brothers and sisters, we are called to stand outside of culture and be witnesses to the fact that Jesus suffered and rose again. He is now King and Lord. And so now we're going to take communion together to celebrate that fact. And what bonds us together and where our identity comes from and our security is in Jesus, who gave his life for us and made us a family. May we love one another well. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are the truth, that you are the way, you are the life. And so, as we take communion, Lord, it's a, it's a reminder to us, even as we're here on a memorial weekend and we're remembering those who have gone before us and those who have given their lives for our freedom, 
We thank you for them, but most of all, Lord, as we consider the cross, we thank you for giving your life for our freedom. So may we worship you even as we do this with grateful hearts for setting us free. In Jesus' name, amen.